So this is uh, Guardian Academy, kind of uh, we do this from time to time with, uh, we did one with Dr. Jeff Spetzer recently, and now we have Andre Norman, who I will introduce shortly. Uh, but I can tell you that Andre's book, Andre's book, let me share it real quick. Right here, I'll, I'll make sure there's a link in the comments and description and all that. Flew off the shelves. I had a, I had a big stack of them for the uh, the Gray Wolf Summit. And Andre's book was flying. I had to keep uh, restocking it. Uh, so, as you know, in the Guardian Academy, we are all about that bridge between uh, technology and the human, right? Uh, I call it the adaptive dilemma, which is a whole bunch of people uh, believe that technology is going to solve all of our problems. Bitcoin fixes this. And as we know, as guardians and leaders of the Guardian Academy, that Bitcoin does not fix this. We play a role as well. We play a role as leaders. Uh, we have to be able <clears throat> to deal with the vicissitudes of the market and the vicissitudes of life. And uh, the best way to learn how to do that is through experience and uh, proximity. So we're going to do this today with you guys. And then Andre and I, we're going to set something up, uh, I think, next month. Hang out in person. I see him almost. We'll probably see each other like once a month, close to once a month uh, in Arizona. And uh, again, when we talk about the vicissitudes of the market, when we talk about extreme highs and extreme lows, uh, there's nobody more appropriate than Andre, who is uh, the ambassador of hope, it's the name of his book. Uh, Andre, correct me if I'm wrong, you were sentenced to over 100 years in prison. Yes, sir. How long was that sentence? Uh, it was 70 10, 290 10s, 2 10s, 2 15 20s, a 5, and 2 3 to 5s. All right, so over 100 years in prison. Uh, when you got into prison, you ended up basically running like the gang system inside of the prison. And then got sent to solitary for two years? Um, I got in. I started on it number 20,000. It was 20,000 people in my prison system. And when you come in, you're the last guy. And when all was said and done, I was number three with a chance to be number one. And yes, it definitely took me to solitary confinement for two and a half years, locking myself by myself in the basement. Oof. So... First thing, because we do, we do have to get to uh, the rest of your story. Obviously, you're not still in solitary. Obviously, you are not in prison. Um, and you actually ended up, let me get this right here. You ended up with a uh, Harvard Law School fellowship. Yes, sir. Really quick, can you walk us through the journey from, like, right before, why did you end up in solitary? And then how do you go from solitary by yourself over a hundred years on your sentence to uh, a Harvard Law School fellowship recipient? Well, grew up in a city, troubled kid, dysfunctional family, got off track. I didn't fit in, didn't know how to really hone my skills or find my tribe. The one thing I did do was play music. My friends told me it was stupid, so I gave it up, which was the dumbest thing ever. So I had no purpose, so I had no plan. So the government's plan for me became real. They threw me in prison for something I did. It wasn't any 
mistaken identity. I did it. And I got to prison. Instead of saying, I've messed up, let me turn around. I doubled down on what got me there. And it only got me further there. And for six years, I participated in gang life, selling drugs, contraband, robbing people, stabbing people, all the stuff to do on the street. And then I found myself with two brand new attempted murder convictions, locked in solitary confinement in a basin, and I thought I was winning because I was number three gang member of the state and I'm still trying to get to number one. I had surpassed over 19,000 plus people to get to status. And then I'm fighting like hell to get to number one. And I had an epiphany that I was the king of nowhere. That nobody in the world cared that I had this mythical title of being the number three gang member in Massachusetts. It really meant nothing. And I started looking at my life and looking at the things that I fought with wings, the people I fought with friends and what I thought family was supposed to be. And I said, my life sucks. I said, I, I, I'm the king of this individual, solitistic world. It means nothing to anybody other than me. And all the people who fear me, love me, care about me, could care less about Because if they said, you're going home, Nick, they're walking out the door. There's no second thought. No, I'm staying with on. He's the boss. No, they're leaving me. So I came to realize that I was building a house in sand underwater. And it just wasn't even real. So I said, okay. If I can't be a psychopath, what's the point of being in prison was the first thing. I said, now, I want to be out of here. It was the first time I ever said I want to be out of prison. Then I realized something. Being free, which is what I said I wanted to be, free is only the parking lot. I want to be free. It's it. Free is the parking lot. So most people get out of prison, they only plan to be free. They may go to the parking lot and they have no, nothing else to do. So they go back to what they used to do and they get in trouble again. So I realized free didn't work for any group, white, black, Spanish, or Asian. So I said, I don't want to be free because it doesn't work because all the free people come back. I said, I want to be successful. And so I said, I go home, go to Harvard, be successful, and I never come back here. And I had a goal. I declared purpose. I declared marching orders and everything else. I built a plan to make that happen. And step one of the plan was to look in the mirror and say, what's inside of Andre that's stopping this plan from happening? Because there's no external force that can stop me. Because if it could, I'd have been dead already. So I am my own worst enemy. I'm my own best ally. I'm black. I'm violent. I'm doing 100 plus years. I can't read. My family's poor. I dropped out of high school. You know what I'm saying? I just made all a list of the true things about me. Then I started working on it. Went back to school, got my GDD. Went to law library, taught myself the law. I went to anger management. I went to subs. I went to all the programs. Everything I need to do to eliminate the list of things that were preventing my goal from happening, I did. And it took me eight years of studying every day. I overturned my case on appeal. I I was guilty, but they, they proved they did it wrongly. So I want to be clear on that. I wasn't like some innocent guy. The DA just messed up. And he made a mistake. I found a mistake. I exploited his mistake in court. And as a jailhouse lawyer, which I taught myself to be, I beat a U.S. attorney. Overturned my case. And they let me out of prison. And when I came home, I had a goal to go to Harvard. And I just stayed on that track. I started in community service, community work, programming. I started designing programs. And people said, he's really good. And people just started hiring me because I was really good at it. And I leveled all the way up to 2016. But Harvard Law School called me and said they wanted to partner with me because of the work that I was doing. Um, there was a situation in Ferguson, Missouri, where a young man was killed by a police officer. And nobody could stop the city from burning. So they called me and asked me to stop it from burning. 
And Harvard heard of the work that I was doing, and they said, we want to partner with you on what you're doing to make this country and this world a better place. So they gave me an email, they gave me a desk, they gave me a little tag and a little office that I shared, but I was there. And um, it was, it was a 25-year march. I was, I was been I snapped my fingers. It was 25 years from when I said it to myself until when they gave me my email and desk, but I made it happen. 25 years. Well, first of all, uh, it, it's shocking to know you and know, like, find out about that afterwards because you're so welcoming and generous and helpful to everybody. Uh, but there's a few things, few things that came up that I just, I think I heard that I would love to uh, touch on really quick is we have this uh, exercise where we say, what do you do when you're drowning? You know, and a lot of people say, uh, I don't want to start to swim, try to keep your head above water, kick your feet, all this stuff. Uh, and everybody always skips the part where they have to decide that they want to live. You know, and so there's that decision that people skip, like they're, they're trying to strategize and execute out. They haven't even really made the decision that they want to live or that they want to change. And then, uh, the, we, we have another thing, let me say the window in the mirror. Right. Everybody has their problems. We all got our problems. We spend a lot of time kind of looking out the window, blaming everybody else. And, uh, after deciding, uh, sounds like you spend some time looking in the mirror, really figure out the things that are true about yourself. Now, when it comes time, two things, I've heard you talk about this before. When things are out of control, uh, spiraling or going downhill quickly, uh, a lot of people, and again, I'm, I'm using this language because I've heard you say it. A lot of people swear rock bottom's got to be coming soon, you know? Um, so I would love to hear you say it again. Talk about um, reaching rock bottom and how do you look in the mirror? How do you be honest about um, the things that you have done? Well, the rock bottom concept is most people believe whether it's addiction, whether it's bad habits, that when you hit rock bottom, that there'll be like some kind of like ticker tape that goes off and you got the email saying that you hit rock bottom and it's time to turn it around and get no works. And the truth is, you choose your rock bottom. I watched my mother be beaten for years. I don't think there's anything worse than that that I can see in my life. I didn't make that my rock bottom. Watch my sister become a prostitute. I didn't make that my rock bottom. I'm saying I watched someone's people die in my neighborhood. I told her to make that my rock bottom. I got sent to prison with a hundred years. I chose not to make that my rock bottom. So you get to choose when your rock bottom is. I just decided to say, you know something, the day I made my decision wasn't the worst day of my life. For some reason, worst day of your life and rock bottom be correlated and it's not. It's two distinct separate things. For me, the worst day of my life was when I lost my grandmother. For me, I can't do nothing about it. That's out of my control. But for me, my rock bottom, I could just say, you know something, this is my rock bottom. If you want to choose today to be that person, just to be that moment, you can decide and stand on it. You don't need uh, a flashing from the skies to say, hey, this is worse it's going to get. That was so many people wait for what they call the worst state of their lives want to change their lives. That is like the dumbest thing ever. Why wait till the ultimate like your legs get chopped off before you want to be a marathon? I'm saying so. I just decided... Today's my day. 
and I'm going to build on it. And I had a guy I used to work for in prison laundry named Bill, all white, cool dude. He was just like, oh, he was like Archie Bunker with the coolest version of Archie Bunker you could ever meet. And I, it was one, I'm going like back in 89, I used to smoke cigarettes. So me and three of the buddies said, we're going to quit smoking. So I go to work on a Friday and New Year's is on Sunday. So I tell Bill, my boss, yo, I'm quitting smoking on, on Sunday. As everybody with a New Year's resolution, you beat your chest about. So I'm running around announcing to the world what I'm going to do with a bill since you're full of shit. I said, we talking about Bill. So what's the difference between today and Sunday? I said, I want to quit on Sunday. He said, no, you're giving yourself an excuse to smoke for two more days. He said, there's no difference between today and Sunday other than you give yourself an excuse to even live with it. He said, every day I want to program to AA, I would have a drink and go to my, my detox. And I was, I come out and I fail. I go to detox again. I have a drink before I go in. He said, the following, the last time I went, I didn't drink before I went in. I just went in. And I've been sober ever since. He said, stop making excuses. Do it adult. I don't care what you do. Adult come in here with BS. And I quit that day. And I've never smoked cigarettes again. I decided that day was my rock bottom. It didn't have to be New Year's Eve. Didn't have to be. Didn't have to be. Oh, I need funeral. I call it funeral thinking. We go to a funeral and we're standing there. We're thinking of all the stuff we want to do in life. All the places we want to go in life. All we want to apologize for like, why are you at the funeral? We have so much clarity standing in a funeral room that is pathetic. I think we should do masterminds to funeral homes because everybody's so clairvoyant. They get it. But the instant they walk out of their funeral home and they're back in their car and their phone starts ringing, they're back to normal. So I just believe I get to decide when my rock bottom is and when I'm going to stop building up with. And I don't need to stand in a funeral home and watch a cousin or auntie lay in a casket to get clarity of thought. I'm all in for the funeral home mastermind. Sign us all up. Uh, so you decide when your rock bottom is. Um, and this is something that we do a lot in the Guardian Academy. We talk about it a lot. It's like in the window in the mirror. The process of actually, uh, there, there's two, there's two things that I'll touch on that are our concepts that I think you could elaborate on. Um, the first is authority versus leadership. Right? And a big part of leadership is helping others, uh, helping others understand how their own behavior is contributing to some of the problems. Right? It's very easy to create the us versus them, the polarization and all that stuff. Uh, but leadership, the way that we talk about it is really, uh, one, first you must lead yourself, then you can lead others. Right. And the process of leading others is helping them understand how their own behavior is contributing to the problem. So the process of leading self is understanding how our own behaviors are, are, you know, causing our problems instead of pointing at others, blaming everybody else, et cetera, et cetera. So you decide to hit rock bottom, make a list of all the things that are true about you. That is a huge friction point. Many people have an aversion to look into the mirror. It's kind of scary. So what is, uh, what is your thought process if, if you're working with somebody else, you're going through this, like, hey, I got to look in the mirror and I, I got to be honest about my own behavior. I got to be honest about what is true about me. Maybe some stuff that I've been denying for a very long time. If somebody doesn't want to tell themselves, not somebody else, themselves, 100% of the truth, then they'll never be 100% successful because that 1% of thing they're holding on to will always block their true path and their true destination. If we have a cancer, we don't want 99% of it out. We want 100% of it out. So when you get your chance to purge or let go, 
let go of everything, not just one last toxic thing that's going to repopulate in your body and cause the same damage to the last thing did. So for me, um, I just make a decision and I had to stand on it and I help people say, listen, what do you want? I want X, Y, or Z. Now, how bad do you want it? Did you want it? Would you, would you rather have this pain or hold on to this pain? People clutch to pain. We kick love out the door, but we clutch on the pain. I watch so many people, my mother, my sister, my aunt, clutch their pain. They refuse to let it go. It becomes like a part of their personality. And it's like they live it. And whatever that looks like. And clutching your pain will never get you to your purpose. So I help I help people have a process where we help people let it go. It's not easy. And you have a place it needs to go and a place it needs to do when you have clear instructions on how to move away from it safely. And authority versus leadership in prison, you would think that the strongest guy wins. No, the strongest guy works for the smartest guy. And that's the first that's the personal. And when I got to prison, I had a buddy named Dominic who was a top gang leader in the prison system. And he was a tough guy. And I used to hang out with Dominic every day. And I used to watch Dominic counsel people. The toughest guys in prison all to Dominic because he was the toughest guy there. And these other tough guys would come to him crying about their mother being sick or their daughter missed a birthday or whatever the thing was. And he would counsel. I'm like, why is this tough guy crying? Why is this guy sobbing? And and Dominic didn't lead them through physical force. He led them through therapy and healing. And he had the undying loyalty of the toughest guys in prison, not because he was a tough guy, but because he was a listening friend. So you never know what somebody's going through. And what they look like has nothing to do with they're going through. So if there's 20 people on his call, there's three people on his call who are dealing with a loved one that's struggling with addiction. There are three people on his call who's worried about their kids struggling with We'll just cast that aside and let's go focus on something different. You are a sum total of your life, not the pieces you want to focus on. So I believe in leadership through wellness, not intimidation. That authority and intimidation is the same to me. So leadership through wellness. If I'm the reason your life is going well, you will be loyal to me. Not making more money, not driving nice. If I'm the reason the pain is out of your life, you'll be loyal. So my goal is let me get all the pain out of your life. And then your loyalty will come because on your own, you're going to go find some more pain. And you're going to come back to me again and want to death me. Because most people double down. I'll remove the pain and they'll go get some more. I'll remove it, they'll go get some more. And I just become that source of honoring and fix it. And if you become a healer, anybody will be your best friend. If you become a bully, you're all rooting for you to fall. That's a... Uh... It's very, very aligned with, uh, you know, Chris Voss, obviously. His whole oh, definitely. Uh, proactive empathy. You know, it's it's, a, it's funny at the highest level. Some of the Chris Voss, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, FBI negotiator of all time. Uh, you, you're talking about it now. There's always some level of uh, of empathy, like proactive empathy, understanding. Uh, so getting out of prison, talking a little bit about leadership there very clearly figured out how to lead yourself. I mean, from where you were to where you ended up, uh, leading others, that's a whole different ballgame, right? So when a city's on fire and nobody can stop them from tearing themselves apart, tearing each other apart, they call Andre Norman. Why? They call me for one reason. I get it done. And 
I come in and it's useless. The city, the country of Honduras and the highest Mediterranean world. Ferguson's on fine. Child soldiers in West Africa. I just want to give you some of the scope of what I'm doing. So from working in St. Louis with the highest moderate in our country. Um, so I go into extreme situations and I can walk into the fire and I can put the fire up. And people call me not because they understand my process. They understand the results from my process. And most, again, this goes back to the helping people heal and they will find more pain. I help them heal. And sometimes they want to stay healed and they do the medications. And sometimes they don't, they go back to the old behavior. So very few people take the medicine to its entire, to the bottles. If they take, they feel better. And whatever thing is comes back in some form. So they call me because I get results. Now I get results because I listen. That they don't call me, they don't care about my process. They care about the outcome. And that's kind of disturbing, but that's the truth. And so when I go, hey, how do I get it done? I listen to the people, I listen for their pain points, and I fix their pain. The same when they do prison, the same when I watch Dominic do in prison, the opposite I watch my, the opposite I, when I watch my dad do, the opposite I would while I watch the guys in my neighborhood do, the opposite. So sometimes you learn the opposite from right from wrong people, but. If you go in and listen, there's a reason people don't find out to wellness. There's a reason people are doing crypto. There's a reason people are on this call. There's a reason for everything. And if I don't, if I talk to you long enough, I'll find your why. And if your why is broken, we're going to straighten it up so you can stand on. Because if your why is broken, you're not going to stand long. You're going to fall. First time there's a crisis, the first time there's a down ticket, first time there's anything, you're going to fall because your why is not strong. So I listen to the kids on the ground in Ferguson. I listen to child soldiers in West Africa. I listen to why the cartels need to kill people. You just have to have the ability to listen and not judge. And they come up with a solution. How do you do what you're doing and not kill people? How do you do, how do you get your message across and not throw rocks at the police? So first you have to listen and then you can redirect from there. But if the person's why is not strong, then it's, it's always going to be a third party manipulating that person to do something. What's the, uh, if you zoom out and you say, uh, over time or big picture, what do you hope to accomplish? My big picture, um, my grandmother, um, Nana Palmas, we called her, my mom's mom. She was tough. Um, on my mom's side, I mean, they're the super cool people, the super intelligent folks. Not against my dad's side. I love my grandma on the other side too. But my grandmother had cancer. She smoked cigarettes, more cigarettes, and drank Canadian mist. Was it Canadian mist? I think so. Every day of her life. Since I know her, she smoked and drank every day since the day I met her. And I'm probably like 40-something years old. She gets diagnosed with some kind of throat cancer. And she goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, we're going to cut this hole out of your throat, and we're going to cut the cancer out, and you'll be fine. And she had one question, can I still drink and smoke? The doctor said, no. He said, you keep drinking and smoking, there's no point in doing the surgery, you're gonna die. She said, have a nice day. And she went home and started planning her funeral. She said, I will live on my terms. I'm not gonna be a mutated version of what you wanted to be. I'm not gonna be happy like that. I wanna drink and smoke, and that's what I'm gonna do. So she called her kids and she told her that her decision. Then I watched my grandmother plan her own funeral. From the flowers, she sat down with the pastor. She did a walkthrough at the church. 
She was doing walkthroughs at the graveyard. I mean, my grandmother planned her own funeral to last syllable. And it had then she died. And she looked to the ground. And that's what it was. And we dropped her off at the gravesite. I'm the type of guy who hangs around last. So I, everybody leaves. I go back over to see my final words. And this strange white dude in overalls comes out. I said, yeah, Juanita was cool. I looked at this like, who are you talking, talking about my grandma? I immediately got offended. He said, like, yeah, she used to call me every day. I was like, that's my grandma. She used to call and talk to the guy who was going to bury her on a routine basis. So I took from her not being scared of death is going to happen in some form of fashion on one day. So I said, when I go, what are they going to say about me? What is going to be on my tombstone, which is the last thing we generally get, is a tombstone of three words. I mean, three saints. It's like the day, day to birth. So my tombstones must say three things. That I'm not trusting my son to write my tombstone. I'm going to be like my grandmother and I'm going to write my own tombstone. The first thing on my tombstone is going to say Harvard Fellow, because I did that. I am a Harvard Fellow. Against all odds and impossible scenarios, I'm known as a Harvard Fellow. And if you've never met me in life, but you look at my tombstone, you will say this smell as a Harvard fellow. The second thing it's going to say is honorable son. I've done crazy work on behalf of my mother and father. And I saw Christmas and sending birthday cards. I've done stuff for my parents that go well beyond anything a normal son would do. And it will say honorable son. Now, mind you, um, hopefully you don't put this part on the clip. I don't like my parents. They weren't very nice to me. But them being nice to me and me being an honorable son is two different things. Honorable son is on my green, uh, on my tombstone. Last is going to say Andre freed people. That started with freed prisoners, and it's expanded to free people. Free you from prison, free you from addiction, free you from a bad relationship, free you from bad thoughts. Whatever's holding you down in some kind of form of prison, I want to say Andre freed people. And that was the biggest expansion on my tombstone because it used to say ended mass incarceration, but that was a specific group, not everybody. And I'm into everybody. When I first came home from prison, I only helped black boys because that's why I was comfortable. And I started helping black girls and I started helping white kids and I started helping Spanish kids. Now I just, I help kids, so I help people. But I started where I was comfortable and I expanded out. So my first thought was, I Ended mass incarceration, which is freeing people from incarceration. Now it's just, it'll say free people. So when you see me, any place in the world, you say, well, what is he doing? And does it line up with his tombstone? Is that an honorable son? Am I seeing an honorable son? Am I seeing a Harvard fellow? Am I seeing somebody trying to free somebody? So right now, I'm sitting on this call because I want somebody to be free. So if somebody walked by and said, what's he doing? No, he's on his own trying to help people get free. That lines up with my tombstone. What was he doing last week? Well, he was in prison three times last week. Helps the lines with my tombstone. Well, he was doing, I had a, um, a lawyer call me about her daughter down in Florida, a little 16 white girl smoking weed and going down our path. I'm now the helper to her 16 hours of community service and coach her in a weekly call, just one little kitty. That's helping her get free from addiction and bad choices. So. I don't play favorites. I just help people get free. If my life doesn't line up with my tombstone, then I have no business to win. I took a note here. Um, to write your tombstone, 
right? Yeah. We have we have a concept. I have a concept, Dala D A L A, which is either directions for acting like an adult or don't act like an asshole. And the way we define asshole is behaving in a way that is diametrically opposed to what you state your beliefs are. That's it. No judgment. You're just so uh, I might add this in here. Write your tombstone, and then anytime you're behaving in a way that is diametrically opposed to what your tombstone says, you're being an asshole. Yeah, I wouldn't call him an asshole. I take vacations and I go to the movies. Going to the movies isn't really freeing anybody, right? But you can still live. But for the most part, your life should reflect those three statements. I, you go to some of these businesses, a mission statement on the wall. You go to someplace else, there's a mission statement on the wall. Where's the mission statement for your life? It's your tombstone. But generally, somebody else will write it for you. Oh, Harry was a nice guy. He was a great dad. And your kids didn't even like it. But they're going to put it on the tombstones. Great. I challenge anybody that is here or watch a replay to do that. Write your tombstone. Give it some thought. Don't rush. Be thoughtful about it. Uh, all right. So we're going to uh, wrap up this uh, live recording, this part. Where we're going to share the replay. Then if you have time, we'll do Q&A. But a few things is... Yeah. Uh, one, Andre and I are going to do some other stuff together. Like I said, we see each other about once a month. Amazing thing about Andre is we'll just be chilling and I blink and he's gone. He, he just disappears like a fucking genie. But, um, when he does that, it took me probably a time or two to like, Hey, the, Andre was here and now he's gone. Uh, he is typically responding to crisis right in the middle of events, right in the middle of the day. Uh, I don't know how many you get per week, per day, but almost every time I've seen you has been like, hey, I got to go help someone and you're out. And that is, uh, it's a good reason to disappear. And uh, second, uh, you have a documentary coming out. Documentary is coming out. Do we have a date? Uh, I would say early spring. Okay. Early spring. I'll early try spring. to get links. Yeah. I'll try to get links. It's Jeff Hayes film. Uh, Jeff, you'll see him in February. He'll give you one. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll see him in February. Uh, Jeff Hayes is a phenomenal filmmaker. Uh, he's a good friend, good dude, all around, incredible human. He makes uh, his his most recent movie was uh, shut down multiple times. And then uh, Andre, also good friends with Joe. We have Recovery Punks, so hopefully in the future we'll be able to do some stuff for uh, like Recovery Punk holders to support uh, Genius Recovery and Artists for Addicts and all of that. The last question that I have before we stop the recording, and it's really just me curious as to what you'll say here. The scariest moment of your adult life. The scariest moment of my adult life. Is this recorded or not recorded? I right, hold on. I'm gonna stop the recording. I'm gonna stop the recording. We're back for just a second because, uh, and everybody that just missed everything off record, you should have extreme FOMO. Um, we talked about a bunch of stuff just now, but what I want to know and what everybody on this call wants to know, because this is the kind of community that we have, and you mentioned even uh, life gives to the giver. If somebody's listening, whether they're live or catch this replay and they say, hey, I want to support Andre. I want to give back. I want to throw some fire on what he's doing. I want to contribute to what he's doing. Uh, what can they do? First thing you can do is not jump over your own to come help my tribe. 
I got a group of people I work with around the world with addiction and incarceration and struggling. But don't skip your own family, your own loved ones, your own community to come help my community. Because that's not making the world a better place. That's just scapegoating and getting you out of making you kill. But when I gave that guy some stuff, he's going to go save the world. Is there somebody in your community that needs your help? Is there somebody in your community that needs that check? Is there somebody in your community that needs your volunteer hours? As much as I'd love to have them, I could use them. I know how to deploy them. Don't jump over your own to go save somebody else's. I'd much rather you say, Dre, there's a school in my community that needs my help. How do I do it? Then you write me a check. Hey, Dre, there's a program for addicted kids in my community. How do I engage it? Then you come volunteer my place. We need, if we all help our own communities, then the whole country is better. If everybody races to the south side of town with me, then only this side is better. And you're neglecting people who could use your help. So if you want to help me, first, let's make sure home is good. Because when you call me, the first thing I want to ask you is how's home? How's home? Because I have a son. His name is Brooks Elliott Norman. And he comes first on planet Earth to me. Because before anybody or any cause or anything, Brooks Elliott Norman comes first. Andre, you can eliminate hunger in the entire world if you sacrifice your baby. That better go plant some corn. Andre, there'll never be a war again if you sacrifice Brooks. You better get a new military or some peace negotiators. You can't have mine. So I take care of home first. And that, again, my kid's not perfect, but I take care of home first. And then I go out and try to help the world be better. So that is my strategy. Please take care of home first. If you need help with that, we will help you with that. And then we can talk about helping the larger society. Because your, your passion might be animals. It might not be people. Your passion might be medicine. It might not be sports. Your passion, I want you to give to something that you're passionate about that matters to you because you do it effortlessly for the rest of your life. Coming on my side of town, helping these kids or these people be something we do periodically. I'd much rather you stay where your heart is. If your heart lines up with my heart, they're clean. It's all good. But um, I came on here to encourage you that there's somebody who lives in your community, somebody in your cell phone, they need to give text me today. Somebody in your cell phone, you can encourage today to just say, hey, man, I forgive you. I hope you forgive me. I love you. There's somebody in your cell phone. If you can't forgive the people in your cell phone or reach out to people in your cell phone, you're not going to be very realistic, authentic, or helpful on my side of town. Because on my side of town, for lack of a better term, we, we see through bullshit. We see through bullshit. So if you're not willing to reach out to your cousin, brother, sister, aunt, or mom, when you come on my side of town, they're going to say, first, not authentic. They hide and stuff. I don't know what it is, but they hide and stuff. It was bullshit. And if you bullshit your people, it's only a matter of time before you bullshit. So please, let's touch on base. Then um, love to work with you any capacity beyond. Awesome. I'll I'll make sure that uh, any opportunity that we have, uh, Andre's always a genius. Network events. Um, so, you know, we 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 cross paths, and if anybody needs help, if anybody wants to contact. Uh, Audrey, for the reason, let me know, and I will... We can put up on the ranch, man. The ranch is cool. Have you all been to the ranch? A handful of them have. Are they playing? They're they they even... The ranch? Come on, man. Let's blow up on the ranch. Yeah, we will do... We will do a lot. Give it a... Probably six months, a year from now, we'll be doing everything up there. 
Thanks for listening to the Garden Academy podcast. Hope it was helpful. If so, do us a favor, subscribe, leave us a review. Now remember, live to learn, give to earn. Reflect on and wrestle with any new ideas that you heard in this episode, and then turn around and share your experience with others. Remember, many of the audio files were pulled from video and turned into articles in our Knowledge Center, which you can access for free. There will be a link in the description. If you want to stay in the loop and hear more about what our members, our partners, and the community is doing, both in the real world and the Web3 world, check out our friends at Inside the Den podcast. Not only are they great dudes, they're highlighting and interviewing the movers and the shakers, and they helped us set up this podcast to be simple, helpful, and fun.